You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hey, John. How you doing? Good, go on. Lynn Lowry here of The Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv and also at patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show with John McWhorter, my frequent, that is, bi-weekly conversation partner. Glenn and John, he teaches at Columbia. I teach at Brown, where the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. And we're back uh, for one of our conversations, one of our bi-weekly conversations. Don't forget to check us out at patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. What's up, John? You know what's up, Glenn? Um, it's been an interesting couple of weeks on social media in response to um, some of the critiques that you and I have leveled. And I want to tell you a quick story. This is a good long time ago now, maybe eight, nine years ago, I think. Um, Roland Martin is a black commentator. A uh, very, very distinguished black commentator, as far as I can tell. Yeah, um, I associate him with CNN. I haven't been following him lately. But yeah. he and I um, used to get along, and, and everything was fine. And then um, he invited me to be on his show. I think I think his radio show or podcast, I, I think it was radio show, way back. Um, and it was supposedly going to be just, you know, a discussion of whatever the race issues were of that time. But I took a look at Twitter and I happened by chance to see that what he was really going to do on the show was try to beat me up. He had some trash talking that he was doing with some friends of his. From his Twitter? Excuse me for interrupting. From Um, what he said on Twitter? I don't think he wrote it to me, but some fans of his used my handle in responding to him or something. And so I just got that whiff that, oh, wait a minute, Roland doesn't want to just talk about stuff. He disapproves of something I've written and he wants to, he wants to be mean. And so I just said, okay, I'm busy. Sorry, won't, won't be on the show. And, you know, there was some trash talk from him and some other people for a few days after that. The idea being that I refused to debate my ideas. Now, the truth is, I love debate. Frankly, some people say I'm pretty good at it. And it's my nature. I'm a rather angry person in some ways. And, you know, for me, it's not sports, it's debate. I like debate. My whole position in the race debate is debate. But when it came to this business of me having to have a nasty little session with Roland Martin, I just didn't feel like it. I have books to read. I have classes to teach. And I thought, why should I spend an hour of my time having to parry mean remarks from this person and, you know, implications that I'm not really black and all the sorts of stuff that would have come from that discussion. I just thought life is short. I'm busy. That wouldn't be fun. It seems like he doesn't like me. Why would I go into his lair? Now, the reason that I mention this is not because of Roland Martin or anything like that. I never think about that anymore. But there's this big thing now about why won't Nicole Hannah-Jones, why won't Dr. Ibram Kendi why what wouldn't Tanahasi Coates come debate you? Come onto this show and debate you, or people seem to imagine there would be some sort of three-way thing where you and I would debate these people. And you and I are supposed to say, yep, tisk tisk, they won't debate their ideas. But Glenn, do you really expect, given the way, for example, if I may, you in particular used to go off about Tanahasi Coates, or frankly, if I may, the way you went off about Nicole Hannah Jones and the way I went off about Ibram Kendi. Do we really expect that these people would come debate us? And does it mean that they're intellectually shallow or personally vain, that they don't want to come debate 
people who have sounded so nasty about them? They're busy too. This is a genuine question. Well, I, I'm I'm impressed by the question, John. You're such a, a mensch. You're such a decent guy. You put yourself in the shoes of your an yeah. adversary, and and you have empathy. Um, this is a continuation, uh, it seems to me, of the spirit of our previous conversation, the one uh, two uh-huh. weeks ago when we did indeed uh, have some critical things, harshly critical things to say about Nicole Hannah-Jones and then uh, also about Ibram Kidvi in a previous conversation where you were, uh, you're not, I'm sorry, I should finish my thought where you were placing yourself in the shoes of uh, the other, in this case, another who had a firm conviction that their view of the world was correct and thought they were fighting for justice, Ida B. Wells style. And you said, suppose someone were to somehow disabuse them of the righteousness of their cause or were to show contempt or a lack of appreciation for the virtue of what their, their life's work was about, um, and they would be perhaps broken in this, and and you couldn't take you couldn't take comfort in their being broken. Now you're talking about Twitter, and you know what little bit of Twitter that I saw, I saw uh, people suggesting that uh, your story, the story that you told in that context about being a kid and encountering a girl that was trying to bully you and got into a fight, and you hit her and she went down. You're nine years old now. You're nine years old. And and people converted that. I'm sure you must have seen it into this. Uh, you were you know bragging about beating up a girl, uh, and in fact, Nicole Hannah Jones herself used the um, this this distortion of the story that you were telling a confession, a confession of empathy and vulnerability, which you were telling your own vulnerability a self-critical confession of doubt about whether one should gloat over taking a relish over victory over uh, smashing someone, even smashing them metaphorically, even smashing their ego, smashing their reputation. How could you gloat over this is you? Nicole Hannah-Jones took the occasion to use that uh, to slander you, in effect, by saying that uh, there was something uh, misogynistic about the story that you were telling. And then to say of such people as you and I who would traffic in this kind of uh, of uh, discussion that uh, she wouldn't deign to, to to talk. Now, now here I find you asking me to have sympathy, asking me to put myself in the other's shoes. I'm having a hard time doing that. Can I understand why they wouldn't come on? Why she in particular wouldn't come on? Sure, I can understand it. She knows that she would get her lunch eaten. Here you go. <laughs> Suppose I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I actually don't know what her motives are. I don't know what her motives are. I don't think that they think that they would get their lunch eaten. I think that they just really don't want to deal with somebody who seems mean and seems like they hate them. And also, you know, they think that we're ridiculous anyway. I get it. Why would they debate us? It doesn't mean that they are not worth their salt. That doesn't, <laughs> at least. Well, 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 wait a minute. Now, you say the 1619 Project. Uh, is shit. I say, busy yourself with stuff with shit like the 1619 Project. She repeats, you show such contempt for me, you say it's shit. But she won't explain why it's not. It's supposed to be self-evident that it's not. I mean, I'm just obviously wrong. I'm, it's, it's beneath her to actually defend her position against the criticism such as I might offer. I mean, uh, you know... I, I just... 
I fully understand. I mean, she might have some sort of defense. That's a whole other issue. But the question is the medium. Why would she come on to the Glenn show? Okay. I fully understand that a person watches you and me yelling and screaming. They're not going to come engage us directly live. But you and I, you and I disagree about things on the Glenn show. John, am I somehow, you know, rude to you or uh, abusive no, in our exchange? We have a certain large area of intersection, and neither one of us are under the impression that the other person's views render them a morally sinister person. And let's face it, in the race debate, when you're on really different sides, there is often that issue. You know, we are we are Judases to a lot of these people. And so there's more okay. to it. Well, much more plausible than, oh, my God, I don't want to be bothered having to engage in this colloquy with someone whom I know doesn't like me, I think, is uh, I'm so obviously right. And this person is so outrageously, offensively uh, unwoke uh, that I won't deign to glorify them and elevate them by giving them the uh, privilege of uh, of uh, engaging in uh, colloquy with me. If that's it's beneath that. me. It's it's you know it's contemptible. You're not for the things that I'm for, mm-hmm. uh, and you're black. You call yourself a black intellectual, mm-hmm. and, and you you curry favor with these uh, reactionaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not getting on the that guy's program and, and giving him uh, you know however many clicks he'd get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think more likely some that. Of yeah, you, I try to put myself in their heads and I come up with that too, which is a variation on that would be if I debated them, they might seem like they're right to at least a certain part of the audience and therefore I'm giving them a pulpit and I wouldn't want to do that. So they're thinking, I know I'm right. I'm on the side of the angels, but if I debated them, that might not be clear. And once again, I get it. 15 years ago, say, I used to always duck debating Michael Eric Dyson. People used to ask, you know, me to debate him, sometimes for money. And I used to turn it down. I must have turned that down four or five times. And the reason I did was because I thought, to the extent that Dyson and I had disagreements about things, and he and I have never been enemies, you know, we're, and we're fine now. But back then, I thought if I get into a room with him, he's going to do that preacher thing. He's got that. I'm up from the streets. I used to be on welfare thing. He's got the I'm an ordained minister. And I'm this starchy person standing there in a suit, sounding like I teach at some university. And back then I had the Manhattan Institute associated with me. And I thought no matter what I say, no matter how I put it, no matter (laughs) what kind of debating skills I use, there's going to be a big group of people in the audience, probably over half of it, who think he's right just because of the way he talks and the words he uses and his authenticity, et cetera, et cetera. I thought I, it'll look like I lost. And so I used to avoid it for that reason. And then as you know, I got a little older and you know, I started feeling a little more sure of myself. Now I've allowed myself to be in spaces with him. But back then I used to think it's not, I couldn't win because it might look like I'm wrong. These people might feel that way about us too, especially given that they have a sense that we have a very sinister audience. I think there's a sense that you and I only appeal to Republican, conservative white people. And that's a vastly outdated take on us. But, you know. Well, that's just not true. That's It's just not, it's not remotely true anymore. But, you know, everybody, we can't all keep up with each other. And a lot of them think that we're only talking to some guy in Arlington, Virginia, 65-year-old white conservative guy who wishes Reagan would come back. That's not either one of us. But a lot of people don't know that. 
So they figure, why support that? So, of course, they're not going to come on to the Glenn Show. Well, maybe we should get some context on this. I mean, where is anybody who disagrees sharply about Black Lives Matter, about affirmative action, about reparations? I'm talking about Black people mm-hmm. who disagree sharply, who have a prominent profile as commentators, intellectuals, journalists, academics, social critics, having an argument in public taking the respective sides of, of those issues. Where Where is the argument with prominent Black people involved in it uh, where reparations is discussed? Uh, or the Black family? Um, or uh, or uh, Al Sharpton uh, as a leader? Um, I don't know that that argument is happening anywhere. So maybe there are more fundamental factors um, that are at work. I, I mean, so so who are the, excuse me, just to finish the thought, mm-hmm. uh, who are the people who set the stage? I mean, uh, at the journals, uh, New York Times, uh, New York Times Sunday Magazine, uh, the Atlantic Monthly or whatever it is, at the networks um, who would it'd get a round table where they actually, Bill Maher, where we would, you know, I mean, there are many, many different venues. These are agents who are Im- implicit in the determination of what actually gets talked about. So I think there's a there's kind of like a broader question because there really is a people are hungry. I'll just finish the thought to hear these uh, debates. I want Nicole Hannah Jones to come on the Glenn Show and defend the 1619 Project. I haven't been uh, shy about what my criticisms are of the 1619 Project. I mean, let's talk about what the narrative should be for our school children for the future of this country in relation to the experiences of African Americans. I have a view about that. So uh, you know. That's what I wanted to say. I know what you mean, but honestly, if, if, you know, take an example. If Kendi had a podcast or um, folks, what you're hearing is my phone ringing and this is real life and I'm just going to let it ring. If okay. Kendi had a podcast or if, you know, Kendi had, you know, a show like this, the Kendi show or something like that. And I saw him on there clucking his tongue and saying that I'm a racist and I need to look at myself in the mirror, which is what he said about me, probably not knowing that I was ever going to find out. But if I saw him doing it and he's talking to Roland Martin or something like that, if they then invited me to come on the show, hell no. No, I'd rather I'd rather read a book just because it would be rather unpleasant. Why would I want to engage with somebody who clearly seems to dislike me personally? And it's going to disrespect me in that way. That might be how these people feel. And so I'm not only asking you, I'm asking a lot of people out there who are roasting people like Kendi and Jones for not debating. I don't know if I would debate us given the way us sometimes behave. I think we need to give them a little credit just for that. So are you are you reprimanding yourself and indirectly me by saying that we have behaved badly in, in no. an inhospitable way that has no. stifled the debate? No, I'm not. I, I'm not. I really don't like the way some people seem to think that if we express ourselves very directly about these people, we're mean. But I wonder if the same people are hearing from those same people when they say mean things about us. Maybe they are, but some, somehow I doubt it. We're, we're always seen to be punching down. It's, it's not fair. But no, I, don't, I wouldn't change a thing. But the idea that you and I are going to do shows like we've done and then criticize people like Coates for not coming on, I think we're being a little disingenuous. We should say what we want to say, how we want to say it, just like they do. 
but we can't then really think that these people are going to come on with a cup of tea and parlay with us. I just think we've always been a little, and by we, I mean both of us, <laughs> have always been a little, little, little sly on that. Of course, Tanahasi Coates didn't come on to the Glenn show. Were we really surprised? I wouldn't take back anything we said, but I wish all of us would let go of I'm uh, sorry, today. John. I can't, I can't go with you on this. You I, can, I take responsibility, even indirectly, for uh, Tanahasi or anybody else not uh, being willing to come on the Glenn show and debate these issues. I mean, I'm just going to say this once. I'm Glenn Lowry, okay? Uh, I got the chops. Uh, I got the pedigree. I got the track record. I've been around for 40 years, okay? So, um, and these are things that are worth arguing about. I think Between the World and Me uh, was not helpful, (laughs) okay? I mean, that condenses a whole lot of different offshoots that one could take up. And this has been talked about and it's been written about by many people, including Thomas Chatterton Williams, our friend in the London Review of Books and elsewhere. Uh, More than that, I think your critique of the reaction to Between the World and Me, uh, which is uh, to be offended that the culture barons would bestow such honor on a work of uh, such little ultimate value, in your opinion, if I quote you correctly. Um, You know, this is a well-established thing. This is out there. Uh, If I were riding high with Hollywood studios throwing seven figures at me to write scripts and publishing houses being willing to advance me six high in the six or low in the seven figures for my next project. And with uh, the, uh, the, 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 high academic and uh, cultural uh, 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 custodians, gatekeepers of the shrine, of the shrine of, you know, uh, significant influence in the society at a high level, willing um, willing to embrace me. And with accolades coming from everywhere, why would I bother? Okay, I mean, so that's, that's uh, probably I have no, I have nothing to gain, and I have a lot to lose. Okay, I have nothing to gain. Suppose I successfully dispatched the gnat, which is the nettlesome John McWhorter. This is you and Nicole Hannah-Jones on uh, the uh, Morning Joe show uh, some time mm-hmm. ago. Suppose I successfully bat him away. Mm-hmm. I've gained very little. Suppose he guts me. Suppose I find myself in a corner. Uh, so suppose I'm really no match for him. Uh, suppose I can't rebut his sharpest critical edge. Uh, I got a lot to lose. And, and by the way, I boost him. I, I make him my equal. He's not my equal. This kind of thing. And I, I think you're way too generous to these people. They have, in my opinion, a duty to come on the Glenn Show. A duty. Okay, it's not about taking me seriously, although I have earned that. Yeah. Uh, it's about uh, integrity. It's 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 about um, uh, honor. Really, I mean. <laughs> 
you 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 throw something out there like that, you you got you should be willing to stand up for it and uh, against the uh, the sternest uh, opposition. I think um, when it comes to these particular issues, though, I think you might misread them in supposing that they could actually imagine being filleted the way you're describing. I don't Perhaps. think they imagine that. What they what they know is. Racism exists, and it's the reason for all Black problems. That's what they know. And for them, there's just, there's no denying that. There's, there's no reason to debate that. And because you and I, quote unquote, don't think racism exists, or we don't think it matters, to them, you know, that sums up what we are. We think there's something wrong with Black people, and that's it. Well, they're just going to drive by that mess. They just figure, I think what they think is I wouldn't gain enough. Why should I bother? I don't know if they're thinking they could actually be pushed into a corner or that it would be a real debate. Like, for for example, um, when Nicole Hannah-Jones kind of cut you off, not cut you off, but said on Twitter last week, I think it was, that she won't engage with you because of, you know, the vitriol that she saw. I caught this exchange very quickly. Some of which came from you, by the way, John. Yes, it, it did, but she, I just she, want people um, to know I'm not the only one up here. <laughs> she had um had um she said at one point, I've never mentioned either one of them in my work, something to that effect. And what's interesting is that just the day before, I had been made privy to an exchange she participated in where she trashed my entire career. Now, she didn't send it. <laughs> to my name, so she didn't know that I saw it, but apparently I think race and racism don't matter, and yet I have built a whole career talking about race and racism, and, you know, this leaves out my whole other and just as busy career as linguist. I guess she doesn't know about that. She said that, and I didn't say anything. I just let that go, but yes, she has uh, addressed me, but that's what people like that think of us. We well, think that racism doesn't matter, and that's, that's the sum of what we're saying. Whereas what we're actually saying is racism doesn't matter as much as what these people are saying. And eliminating racism is not the way to make black people's lives better in all cases, which is different. And I don't think it's even all that deep, but they are not hearing us that way. They're hearing us as saying racism ended in 1964. So they just figure, why, why, why bother with them? And if that's what you think, you're not going to engage anybody's work closely. You're not going to read their whole books or something like that. I wouldn't if I were them. So I can tell that with a lot of people like that, they saw me on C-SPAN talking about losing the race in about 2001 or two. They've got this picture of 30-something me talking to white conservatives back early in the Bush administration, and they let it go there. Why would they ever engage me again? They have other things to do. We don't engage everybody. You know, sometimes you just let one snapshot take care of it. So I'm just saying, I'm not saying that I agree with their views and I'm not saying- Can I say something, John? I think, what? I think you're selling yourself and I think you're selling us short. They should engage with us because we're interesting. They should engage, <laughs> they should engage with us because we're saying things that deserve to be thought about, even if we're wrong. They, they should engage with us because they're curious. Uh, why do you read the newspaper? Why do we, when, uh, you know- Somebody comes out with a new book that's about something that I think is interesting. Why do I read it? I read it because I think I've got something to learn. You don't think they have anything to learn from us? Oh, they do. They do. Okay, so they should engage with us. I mean, that's what we're talking about. But I wanted to, if I may, go back to something because I think the black conservative involved, just let me use that word, okay? I'm not trying to put you in a box, John. 
It's okay. Uh, intellectuals, contrarian if you like, uh, has a problem, especially in the advocacy of diminishing an emphasis on race. Take our friend Thomas Chatterton Williams, Unlearning Race. That's the title of his latest book. Um, that would be another example of the dilemma that I think a contrarian intellectual who wants to talk down race, but who happens to be black and gains prominence from talking down race has. There is a kind of contradiction built into that, John, because, but for your race, the talking down that you're engaging in wouldn't be so interesting. I mean, a lot of people can say, let's unlearn race. But when Thomas Chatterton Williams says, let's stop being black, I'm black. Well, my mom is white. My dad is black. My daughter is, well, what is my daughter? Because her mom is French and I'm my grandmother, you know, whatever. And are we going to go on reproducing these binary categorical classifications that put us in boxes when life is so much more interesting and where all the action is on the margin of these boxes, this kind of idea, but he's black. The reason you're reading him is because he's black. Suppose he was a white guy. Nobody would read the book. I'm serious. No one would read it. No one would read Losing the Race. Maybe no one, uh, not nearly as many people as who did read your uh, wonderful, I say now, uh, 2000, uh, uh, published in the year 2000, a book that introduces you to the world of social criticism on racial issues. No one would read it if you weren't black. Uh, no one would be looking, listening to the black guys at bloggingheads.tv, at least not in the numbers that they are listening to. If we weren't black. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so don't we have to show, this is my bottom line on this, a certain amount of self-awareness and a certain amount of, you know, irony don't, don't we have to, don't we have to allow, and, and, and indeed, when we refer to ourselves as the black guys at bloggingheads.tv, mindful of the fact that the audience knows that we are deeply skeptical about the black people with three names who run around talking about race all the time. And when we think that race is one of the things, but that's not in any way the only thing that one can be talking about, aren't we in a way pointing at this kind of dilemma or conundrum uh, that I'm trying to I'm trying to describe here. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's awkward because, um, of course, that's just it. A white person writing these things is too easily written off as a racist, and a critical mass of non-black people will think that no black people think that way. And so, you as a black person, I as a black person, write something showing that we feel that way. And then you hear people saying, well, if you weren't black, you wouldn't have your renown. Where I think to myself, but the thing is, we need to show that you can be black and feel this way. And here's where I think, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like this is something that I probably have not always stressed as much as I should, which is that I don't write these things thinking, here's what cute little me thinks. And I imagine there are two or three other people. And if we think this way, then how can you say that there's a black way of thinking? Because frankly, if it were only four or five black people who thought this way, there would be a black way of thinking. It's just that some people are a little odd. I've always written my stuff because I've always felt I'm not saying anything that countless black people of all socioeconomic levels don't agree with. It's just that they don't have blogs and they don't write books. And so I just figure I am writing for a great many other people. And I'm not sure all people quite get that about us. You know, and you can, you, you just church, 
you know, if you are a church-going black person, you know how many black people feel about things. And this is not just the social conservatism. I don't mean that many black people in church are against abortion. The whole package, everything Shelby Steele says, goes over very well in many black churches. And all sorts of people, and you and I know of the classic case. Anybody like us talks about this. You give a talk to a hostile audience, and then sheepishly, the black kid walks in, almost always a guy for some reason, and says that actually they agree with you, but they just didn't want to say it in front of the crowd, that sort of thing. And it's just that that person was especially you know, diligent. There were other people in that audience. But yeah, it, it's awkward because the three name people, and I'm not thinking about any one of them in particular, they tend to be under the impression that all black people think the way they do. There was one modestly prominent black talking head. Um, she actually only has two names, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say who she is because I don't want to start a whole Twitter call out about her. But she did a tweet once where she said in response to somebody <laughs> I know praising, Go ahead, praising us and Coleman. <laughs> she said, if you're not um if you're not listening to black people who black people actually listen to and read, then you're not listening to real black people. Something like that. Where she just assumes that, you know, we are these complete outliers. Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter don't speak for black people. Joy Reid right. does. That, yeah. And so, yeah, that's what a lot of people think. So there, there's some real differences in, in perception out there. Sometimes I think it, we could work on that harder. Well, I think you call attention to the church. You say there's a lot of sub rosa or kitchen table uh, uh, agreement that uh, you don't uh, necessarily see on the front page of the New York Times. And I think that raises the question of washing dirty, dirty linen, washing dirty linen, you know, of, of a kind of loyalty problem. Insider talk, outsider talk. Quite all right to have it up to here with these thugs who are making life unlivable in so many cities around the country when you're in a church basement. Uh, and you're, you know, uh, talking to somebody who's been victimized, whose house has been broken into, whose car has been jacked, who's been mugged, who's been raped. I mean, these are real people. This happens every day. It's mostly black on black crime in a lot of urban America. And there's a lot of people who are victimized by it and they have to go someplace and they have to tell their stories. Those stories are being heard and they're being told. They are eliciting what emotion you would expect them to elicit from people who are angry about the fact that they've been victimized and who are frightened about the prospect that they might be victimized yet again and who are frustrated at the fact that the aberrant behavior of a relatively few people among them in their midst has made their lives so miserable. Uh, those voices are inside. That's that's uh, stuff to be talked about amongst the folk. When you get to a point where white people can hear you, again, I speak metaphorically, you know, when you get to a point where you're engaging the larger public discussion, so that the remarks that you make might be seized upon by others. And of course, the internet is a place where anybody can seize upon anything. Uh, then uh, the fact that you have enunciated a particular claim, which may be unimpeccably true, and moreover, may be warmly endorsed by a large number of your co-racialists, the fact that you've uttered it becomes a betrayal. <laughs> you knew that the white people could hear you when you were saying this, and you said it anyway. What kind of black person are you? Mm-hmm. What what kind of Negro? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to use that word. <laughs> what kind of nigger? Yeah. <laughs> because that's the way it would be said. That nigger doesn't know, you know, that nigger don't, you know, that's what they're saying. <laughs> they're going to use this as the clip. Uh, okay. Let them use it. <laughs> no, no, it's not just saying the N-word here that I'm getting at. 
climate. Uh, I'm getting at where are the boundaries of good standing membership in the group and what can one do to transgress those boundaries and what kind of responses does that elicit from other people? That's the unkindest cut of all, as Shakespeare would say. That's the unkindest cut of all to be told you're not really black. I've devoted my entire life to writing about these questions. My PhD dissertation, 1976 MIT, is about these questions. I've been doing this for my entire life to be told that I'm irrelevant, that I'm not really an authentic representative of the fruit of African-American late 20th century striving and prosperity, that I'm not a product of the elite educational institutions that just like Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, we should all as black people be proud of, that my life's labors are, uh, you know, a pathetic uh, mascot of some right-wing uh, reaction. That hurts. That hurts, and they mean to hurt me. Okay, well, too old for that now, John. I'm going to be fighting back. And besides, as I said, these people are dangerous. Their ideas are actually harmful. They're costing lives. They're holding people back. They're wrong. Wrong about something that's really, really important. You know, that... um. That you're not really black thing when it comes to the sorts of opinions we express, that one has never bothered me much because honestly, I hear it as parochialism. The type of person who comes up with that, I genuinely think their horizons for one reason or another are not as broad as we might prefer. And that's what it looks like from their perspective. But for me, that one is just, you don't know me and your sense of what black is, is, you know, a little, little elementary for my taste. No, 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 let me take back elementary. Those people's sense of what black is is partly visceral. They're talking about all sorts of things. And I just, I can't, that one is not a shiv for me. The dirty laundry thing, though, is irritating because that one bothers me because there's this idea, the church basement was beautiful. I'm, I'm literally thinking of the basement. You know, it's all linoleum floor. The kitchen is probably down there. And people are having these conversations about Omar that, you know, come straight out of, you know, heritage and AEI. But then you're not supposed to talk about that in in public. And, you know, it's at the point where I think, what do you think whites are going to do with this information? Like, give me the historical precedent. It's like you think all of a sudden the Dixiecrats are going to come back and legislation is going to turn against black people, et cetera. And don't tell me that it's about anti-crime and anti-drug legislation because people came out of those church basements and had their Congress people support those exact anti-crime measures. Those were not anti-black measures at the time because there were too many very black people who espoused them. They didn't know how it was going to come out. Who did? But other than that, I'd like people to explain what has this big backlash been? And so you're not supposed to air the dirty laundry. Well, we had a black president, not once, but twice. You're not supposed to air dirty laundry. It's at the point where a black form of music is now the whole world's musical lingua franca rap. Everybody listens to black men from the streets bragging to a beat. Who would ever have thought that would be the case in 1985? Everybody hears those voices as useful and authentic. There's so much progress. There are nasty things that happen. And many people would say the cops, 
that's a whole kettle of fish. You and I think that people are wrong about that. But a lot of people would say there's the cops. But then again, you have to think about what the cops were like before. So now you smoke out these statistical tendencies and you interpret them in certain ways. But, you know, think about the cops as Malcolm X. I just read the new biography of him. Malcolm X knew. You know, there, history happens. And I think that really a lot of people would draw a blank if you say, what is it white people are going to do if they hear these things? What are you afraid of based on historical precedent the past 20 years? What it really is, is insecurity. It's that there is a part of being black in America today that unfortunately still has a feeling that the white people are better. They hold all the chips that black people have to be very sensitive about how white people feel about them because anybody who's that sensitive about that deep down feels like there's something wrong with us. So those people accuse us of saying that there's something wrong with black people, where really I think if there's something wrong with black people, it's that too many educated black people are a little afraid of white people. And that is something wrong. That's a something wrong, which maybe they'll like this. I think it's conditioned by racism in the past. It's a legacy of the way black people were treated. But for a lot of those people, I just think to myself, why are you so worried about how white people feel about black people? What is the result? Now, maybe what you're thinking about is the cops, but that couldn't be your whole answer. I think it's larger. It's a whole sense of racial self-conception. And it, it disturbs me. It, it means that we're supposed to have a fake conversation about race out of a misplaced fear of whiteness. I don't know if it's a fear of whiteness, though I think your speculation is very interesting. And and your question, well, why do we care? Why do they, other Black people, care about what white people are thinking about Black people is apt. It, it, it's, the, it's the right question, I think. Uh, I have an idea. I'm not sure it's right. Uh, there is, we're in an equilibrium, as an economist might say. We're in a stable ongoing situation where there are tacit agreements not to talk about certain things, not to talk about black on black crime as the scourge that it is, not to talk about affirmative action as being necessary because of black mediocrity, not measuring up on the competitive edge at some of the most uh, elite stuff. Uh, you know, not talking about uh, the new Jim Crow is ridiculous. The idea that the 13th amendment, which uh, abrogates involuntary servitude, was really a fraud because it has a backdoor trap in it called except when they violate the law and you can put them in prison, which is then manifested 150 years later in the fact that the jail, it's a fraud. So we're in an equilibrium where there's fraud. There's, there's, this is my bluffing thing. We're in a bluffing equilibrium. People don't want to talk about the black family. It's an absolute catastrophe that three quarters, two thirds to three quarters of black kids are being raised in a home with, without a father. Uh, president in the home, in terms of the social cohesion of the community. People don't want to say that. Uh, th there's a whole lot of stuff that they don't want to say. They don't want to say that the Latinos are actually overtaking the Blacks on, on one venue after another after another in terms of, you just look at the social statistics and how they rank out by ethnic groups and stuff like that. They don't want to talk about failure. The failure of a community, this is African-Americans at a certain social strata to incorporate themselves into the engine of prosperity, which is the American political economy, to which tens of millions of immigrants have come and prospered. They don't want to talk about There's a lot of stuff that they want to talk about. There's fraud, there's lying, there's uh, avoidance. Okay? 
So we're in this equilibrium with nobody. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid that the balloon is going to burst. That they're afraid that the taboo is going to unravel. When a black person says what's true, but conveniently not spoken of on behalf of black dignity, faux dignity, by the way, because it's not rooted in real stuff. It's rooted in a tacit agreement not to talk about it. When a black person breaks that, it makes it a little bit more possible for white people to break it too. And when everybody starts breaking it, when everybody starts saying nigger, 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 because when I turn on a Sirius XM and I go to my hip hop channel, that's all I hear. And everybody starts saying, you can't tell me what words to say. When everybody starts saying, I can't believe the level of criminal violence amongst you people. Every time I pick up the newspaper, it makes me afraid. Of course, I'm moving my family and my children away from you people. When everybody starts saying, will you please pull your own weight? It's a country where the streets are paved with gold. Look at what the West African immigrants are managing to make of their lives here. They're black, too. When everybody starts saying, you got to be kidding me, the new Jim Crow. When everybody starts saying Ibram X. Kendi is an empty suit. Then the gig is up. The jig is up. The bluff is called. And they don't have any cards. So that's what they're afraid of. You know what? We're we're zeroing in on an area of agreement here. However, I lost you on cards. Once again, you think these people are more cynical than I do. What they lose is their sense of significance and warm group membership. You're right. It's that dance that Shelby Steele talked about. And it's that pact to not speak honestly. Yeah, like to, I would add something, to talk about diversity in university admissions and at the same time applaud when the black university student complains about having to express their diverse view in classes and saying that that's racism to impose that expectation. Doesn't that cancel out the whole issue of diversity and affirmative action and suggest that we need to start looking at things in different ways? You're not supposed to say that. Any white person engaging those issues knows that they're just supposed to shut up. Once that kind of pact was broken, I think that it's not that people would feel like they didn't have any cards, black people. It's that the people in question would lose their sense of what makes them important as human beings. Because I think that that sense of the victimhood status is something available to black people because of the nature of our social history. It's something that's there. It's one of many things you might grab onto. And it's very tempting. And so it's not a surprise that a lot of black people grab onto that as a way of feeling good about themselves, while other people have to come up with other ways of feeling good about themselves. It's just, it's always available. Yes, once we stop doing that little dance and we start having real conversations, for a lot of black people, they wouldn't know where to stand. And that must feel very threatening. There's a scientific study that came out recently that actually finally put science to something that I think both of us have always felt. I've always said it based on intuition, which is that when you are not being truly victimized, when things are relatively okay, a sense of victimization, spiritual victimization, a sense that you are owed is a kind of euphoria it actually lights up the same parts of the brain as happiness. There's a certain joy in what you might call the victim complex. That's always been very clear to me. And so it is very easy to 
grasp, grabbed for that kind of joy if you are a 21st century black person. Your life is probably pretty much okay, but your sense of what makes you matter is that you're owed, that you are on a certain level this victim. To not do the dance means that you don't have that anymore, and that would be psychologically dislocating. And so once again, I get it. Nobody wants that, and so people avoid it. They want to have that sense of being victims who, there's a verb I couldn't get last time we talked about, who negotiate their way through society as Black people because it's such a minefield. If that's your conception of your life, then, you know, especially if you don't have to actually empirically support exactly why your life is that much of a minefield, it, it, it makes you feel good. That's, that's who you are. I get that. And so, yeah, that's why we have such a dishonest race discussion. But it's a bad situation because it means that there's too much we can't do to make actual lives better for people who really need help. Okay, well, I have to ask you something. How do you think it's going to change, if ever? I mean, uh, there was a time when I thought, uh, and people will get mad at me, you know, I was saying Trump, it was not all bad. I was willing to say something positive about <laughs> Trump. And I want to explain myself. Now I'm going to try to redeem myself for having ever said anything positive about Trump, which was I like the fact that he was shaking up the, uh, the, the conversation and going across lines and stuff like that. Is he a racist or not? You and I have debated this question here at the Glenn Show. I don't think it's a very interesting question, but whatever, okay? It's obviously irrelevant now because Trump is on his way out. God help us. We ought to talk about that one of these days, uh, you know, about uh, the, the end game here on the Trump administration. But but enough about that. I wanted to shake things up, you know. I mean, uh, I thought that uh, maybe maybe, you know, when we are forced to try to consider some things, we might be able to have a different kind of conversation about it somehow. But that's over now. And we're going to revert back to status quo ante, aren't we, in terms of the uh, intellectual conversation on racial issues. It's going to all be about racial mm. justice, and you know who the mm. people are who are going to be deciding what that means. Mm. Eddie Glout uh, tweeted the other day that his face was on a billboard, an electronic uh, billboard in Times Square as a part of the advertisement that some company was doing for some program that they have, of which he was a constituent contributor. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was, you know, some commercial thing, but I mean, Eddie Glau's picture is on a billboard in Times Square. This is the professor of religion and uh, chairman of Afro studies. At that Vincent. must feel good. I that, that <laughs> I saw the picture. He had a photo of it on his Twitter, Twitter uh, thing. I'll take and, a look. And it looked, yeah. you know, I said, oh, that's him. I recognize him. And wow, yeah. that's, you know, that's pretty cool. I mean, I got to admit, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you know who's going to be calling the shots. So I don't know that. I, oh, you don't know that. No, I I, I know what you suspects. I I think oh they're going to have a lot of influence, but I think the nature of social media and the nature of 2020 and the nature of our friend Coleman, I think that other voices are going to be more part of the mix. I know that from the careers of the younger guys than us. I know that from the sorts of things I'm asked to do and by which people. I don't think it's going to be. It's it's not going to be 1998. I think we are going to see at least a little bit more honesty. I think, you know, I, you're not supposed to say this, and maybe I'm too much in my own head, but I think I think we're being heard, Glenn. And, you know, there are people, it's funny, I never quite understand this. There are 
people who hate our guts who nevertheless seem to watch every one of these. And I'm thinking, why do you spend an hour <laughs> listening to us when you could be going and watching a TV show? But, you know, those people always, you know, talk about what jerks we are. And yet they seem to think that other than them, and I guess their friend down the street, the only people listening to us are these, you know, rock-ribbed conservatives. But it's not true. I think that we're being heard and that a critical mass of people do not think we're idiots. That's all. They don't have to think we're geniuses, but that these voices matter. And so I think that the sorts of things we're saying are not processed as plutonium the way they were 20 years ago. And I'm glad, I'm glad to see it. I could be wrong though. You know, I, you know. I think you are wrong. I don't know. At least about the Biden, about the Biden administration. I mean, I I don't think you're wrong across the board. I do think we are being heard, but. Well, let me ask if you have something really quick, for example, Michael Eric Dyson, who I have no problem with. I don't agree with him about some things, but there's no issue with Dyson. He is not as in the middle of the conversation today as he was 10 years ago. And by that, I just mean that there's more room for us. He's somebody I think about in that way. The conversation has shifted somewhat. So he's still doing his thing. But, you know, I think that it's a different universe than it was in 2004. Al Sharpton, for example, and we've had our disagreements about him, but frankly, is he even at the center of the conversation in the way that he was in, say, 2004? Imagine him running for president now and how much less it would matter than it seemed to then. I feel a shift. You don't, you don't feel it? Am I too much in my own head? No, I wouldn't say that. I don't know. Um... I mean, if I were to base it off of the anecdotal data, which are my inbox, um, you know, there, there's a lot of appreciation out there. And, um, you know, uh, uh, patreon.com forward slash the Glenn show. That's two ends, one word, patreon.com forward slash the Glenn show. We've got almost 2000 patrons. We've got almost 2000 patrons. So that's not nothing. Um, and folks, they're not all. White guys, 65 years old, sitting in a lazy boy in Arlington who missed Ronald Reagan. Not by a long shot. Just want to make that clear. The commentary out there on uh, our various offerings here at the Glenn Show and elsewhere um, uh, is mixed. And a lot of it is extremely positive. So there's that. And no, they're not all, you know, white people who are waiting to be confirmed in their unwoke, uh, you know, uh, quote, racist, close quote. I don't think it's mostly that. Sensibility. Yeah. No, it's not mostly. It's people who are stifled by the fact that we, they can't breathe in the conversation because the conversation is too, um, you know, monocultural. Uh, so um, I don't know, but I think politics. Um, uh, so the thing I was going to say about the Biden administration was uh, their main problem, isn't it, is in keeping the energy on the progressive left uh, in place and, you know, not mm. having a not having a revolt. And isn't the easiest way to placate on racial issues, uh, people mm. on the progressive left to basically buy the woke uh, rhetoric and the Ibram Kendi rhetoric, maybe not to the point of a constitutional amendment mandating uh, racial equity impact statements from every government action or something like that. I mean, the more extreme uh, defund the police. People will be at pains to show that they're not trying to defund the police. But, um, you know, basically they're going to buy it hook, line, and sinker. There's going to be a commission to study reparations. Uh, John, and certainly if uh, the House of Representatives has anything to say about it, 
I think that that's a, that's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of talk about uh, inclusion and diversity and various uh, appointments and federal initiatives and whatnot. Racial impact statements, whether mandated as Kendi would have it or simply the outcome of administrative process are likely to proliferate. And the usual suspects, you say, we haven't heard much from Al Sharpton. Well, he's getting up there in years. Um, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, who's, who's going to, uh, who's going to replace him. Uh, there are going to be criminal justice initiatives, the net effect of which is going to be to, you know, reduce the, uh, the, the weight that, uh, is that law enforcement and, uh, punishment, uh, brings to bear on criminal offenders who happen to be of color. Uh, and, and that's going to be, uh, touted as a, as a good thing. Uh, when it's a complicated thing, it's a good thing to some degree, but it has its issues. Um, I don't know what's going to happen on uh, charter schools, but I, I somehow think I can imagine that the who's going to be the secretary of education is going to be a former president of the National Education Association or somebody about that. Who's going to be the assistant secretary for civil rights in, in the uh, education department or, the, you know, uh, the assistant attorney general for civil rights and, and their staffs and whatnot? Who are those? I don't know. I expect to hear more from Maxine Waters. I expect to hear more from James Clyburn. I, you know, I, I, you know. Um, all right. All of that it has to be the case. Yeah. Um, it's going to be, you know, Michelle Alexander will be consulted at the White House. We need not Absolutely. wonder. Ibram Kendi will be consulted by people at the White House. He has a trip coming up, I'm sure, very soon. That will definitely happen. But you know what? I guess I'm thinking not only of what the political gestures will be, because a lot of that is interesting, but a lot of that is optics. A lot of that is going to be what do we make things look like here in contrast to that hideous jackass who was in office before to show that and also to show that we are aware of racism and its power. And as you and I both know, an awful lot of that involves inevitably you can't help it, involves a certain amount of kabuki. Yeah, there will be that. But what will the conversation be like in general about race? And the conversation about race has as much to do with changing lives as who's the secretary of this, who gets consulted about that, who's in a picture with the president, et cetera. And on that, I feel like the whole conversation about race, despite what's happened this year, is different than it used to be in that there's this massive lurch to a kind of hard left thinking that becomes very popular in June. And certain people, such as, you know, you and me started pushing back. And I don't feel like we got pushed down a manhole. People, people listened. I think that the conversation has been much richer than it would have been if that had happened 10 years ago. You're referring to the George Floyd incident and its aftermath? Yeah. yeah. I feel like everything was beginning to sound a little bit insane in June and July. And some people decide to say, no, wait a minute. You know, there's, it's one thing to be interested in progress. It's another thing to, you know, have this religion going on. And, you know, it's not like anybody sky writes, you win. But I think that there has been a richer discussion, even in certain august media organs, not all of them, but certain august media organs, than there would be otherwise. Think of this, for example, and I just thought of this right now. The Atlantic, 10 years ago, race, we know who it was, and that was who determined what the Atlantic said. Today, in the Atlantic, there are two people, Kendi and me, 
And I would venture to say this is. I didn't know Kindy was at the Atlantic. I'm sorry, my ignorance. Yeah, he he writes about once okay. a month, and you know, yeah. Frankly, okay. if you look at who gets the most views at the Atlantic, he and I are about the same. Okay. Usually, when I write, it, it gets one of the things that people are reading for a few days, and that's true of him. That is Jeffrey Goldberg still the editor? Excuse me. Who? Yeah, yes, he is. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very different Atlantic. Ten years ago, I don't think the Atlantic would have had me. Whereas now they have Kendi, who takes the Coatesian kind of line, and then they have somebody like me. And that's different. I think that we're in a different world now, partly because of the nature of social media. I hear you. The optics are not going to be great in the Biden White House. No. But maybe they're just optics. Do you think Charles Blow's columns are going to sound any different going forward than they have sounded for the last five years? (laughs) I have a passage in the book. By the way, folks, that book, you will know the story on my anti-woke book in about two weeks. But in that book, I don't mention him, but I'm thinking about him when I say at a certain point that no matter what happens on race, no matter how much progress there is, there's a certain kind of person who will be writing the same things and saying the same things a year from now. Because the idea is a certain religious position, a psychological position, and not engaging with reality. Yes, his columns will stay exactly the same. Yeah. That's not going to change. But I think there are other things one could one one could look at. Do you but think you, that Charles Murray is going to be able, if he were willing to do so, to speak on a college campus like yours or mine? Uh, what yeah. about Heather McDonald? Yes, I think that there was enough of a pushback against that kind of extreme. It's so hard to imagine anything happening on a college campus now. But yeah, I think it's at the point that a case has been made that some sort of free speech needs to be respected. And that people with views like Murray's and Heather McDonald's do not deserve to be chased off of a campus. I think that is something that was a fashion in the mid-20-teens. And I think that there's enough of a pushback against it that Charles Murray will be able to speak without, you know, being hunted with a gun. Yeah, I think that's part of the sign of progress that I'm talking about. Well, okay, this is a test case because I think you're wrong. And and I think (laughs) a former undersecretary of the Department of Homeland Security uh, with responsibilities for border security who attempted to speak at the University of California, Berkeley, I mean, from the Trump administration, mm-hmm. that they would have to spend six figures on security to get this person into a darkened room where uh, they would, you know, et cetera. I mean, I, I, I don't think, I don't see any uh, rollback whatsoever of the uh, cancel culture, uh, the, you know, self-righteous uh, chest beating uh, tyranny in a little small T, very small T, but still, um, you know, that, um, so I don't know. Let me be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I do too. You know, <laughs> you need, we need to see what happens at the Dalton school here in New York. There's a, ah. or the Dalton school is a very progressive upper East side, you know, Academy. And, uh, the, What's the story? The idea is to start working to bring um, the teachers back into the building so that there's no longer virtual teaching. And the black faculty have insisted that it's harder for them to come to the actual building because a lot of them have longer commutes and that puts them in more danger of exposure to COVID. That I don't know whether that's true or not, but this, there's been a springboard from that claim, which might be true, to a whole diversity and inclusion manifesto mounted by this faculty that would basically completely turn upside down, dilute, and ruin what 
Dalton is about, which is giving people a top class education. And it's the usual stuff where, you know, all courses are suffused with concern about diversity. And this is a private academy, right? An elite private academy. And so the, and so there are alumni who are threatening to, you know, withdraw their contributions. And the thing is, Dalton is very, very woke and has been for a long time. I have, just a second, I have Columbia students from Dalton. They are some of the most enlightened. And I don't mean that as a slam enlightened white kids on the campus. And I once did a debate at Dalton back when people thought of me as more conservative than I am, which didn't go very well. The audience, these parents, they did not like me. There was nothing I could say, which shows you what the atmosphere at Dalton is like. And yet it is being assailed as a pitilessly racist institution by this black faculty now. Now Dalton could really just be broken. Dalton may be over as we know it, or it could be that the whites who run Dalton have the bravery after listening to how we've talked about these things, especially for the past six months, that they'll say, folks, we'll make some changes, but we're not going to ruin our institution. Dalton could go down over this? If they actually give in to the demands of this slate that these people have put, and I ask everybody who's interested in this to just go online and take a look. If they did this, Dalton wouldn't be a school. It would be a Marxist indoctrination camp it's just what they're demanding the demands are about curriculum yeah oh everything has to be changed the demands are coming from black faculty mm-hmm. yeah black faculty uh, have, mm-hmm. have enough leverage that they can move the the whole boat uh well, how many of them happening? are there how long is their investment in what i assume is a venerable white shoe uh, you know, kind of uh, enterprise. I mean, they must be families, several generations of Dalton. Yeah. So have they going to let themselves be pushed around by the help? You've seen that it. a certain kind of white person does let themselves get pushed around by, I'm not going to say what you just said, but <laughs> I wonder if Dalton is going oh. to follow suit. <laughs> I thought it was rather clever, John. <laughs> <laughs> it was, but I'm still not going to say it. All right. So I just wonder how the Dalton story is going to go, because I think of it as a bellwether. I think that's what that word means. And so if they push back, they are following the Times and not not the New York Times, but the Times as they are. Yeah. And using some fucking sense and, you know, saying, yes, racism exists. We'll do some things, but we're not going to turn this institution upside down and make it into white fragility academy. I'd be very interested to see if they have the balls to do that. And I suspect... I'm going to end up being wrong. I suspect that they will. And that's a sign that we're having a more intelligent conversation than we were certainly in June. When I almost interrupted earlier, I wanted to ask, where do your girls go to school? Well, they're not going there. They go to... (laughs) (laughs) Why? Because it's 50,000 a head a year? (laughs) Probably that. And probably they get caught up in, in that. And Lord forbid yeah. somebody, you know, tell them what race they are and therefore how they're supposed to think. I mean, Dalton, yeah. the last time I saw Dalton in the news, they were one of the places where they were teaching kids about white privilege at that tender age. That's what this school is like, the wokest place on earth, and yet being told that it is inveterately racist. My girls go to the public school, public school around the corner. I wish that sometimes it would open but yeah, that is, <laughs> and it's a great, great school. I was going to ask, you're happy with it? Yeah, Jackson Heights is a lucky place that way. You're in Queens. Good, Jackson Heights, Queens. Yeah, the public schools are actually excellent. So yeah, for the time being, at least they can do that, and I don't have to spend fifty thousand dollars a year. But I'll be interested to see when some of this indoctrination comes down, if it does. I don't see why my daughters are going to be utterly immune to it. But that's a bridge I'll have to burn when I. 
All right. We're bi-weekly here at the Glenn Show, John. Uh, we got to think about what we're going to be doing with our time going forward. Do you want to read that Obama? Um, yes. Memoir? Yes, especially because school's off now. So I'll have some time to read it. I warn you, it's memoir is not my, my genre. I, I, I like biography. Somebody talking about their own life. No offense. But that, to me, I just always, <laughs> just, I figure I only want to read about a person. Now I'm going to make it even worse. I want to read about somebody when their life is complete and over, and then somebody <laughs> assesses it as a whole. So, but I will read this one. I never read um, Dreams of My Father, but I will, I will take a look at it. I saw a review from David Garrow uh, somewhere recently, which was, really? uh, which was very intriguing. Huh. Yeah. Uh, he says Obama talks uh, uh, to some degree about about himself in revealing ways and acknowledges his uh, di- to some degree his disappointment with what he was able to accomplish in the first administration and regrets the toll that uh, it has taken that his uh, ascendancy had taken on uh, on Michelle. Uh, I gather they weathered the storm. Their girls are you know growing up and such. Um, and reveals his uh, long-standing ambition to be president, which uh, predates him being elected to the Senate of the United States, and which is a, you know, a kind of thing within him. This hunger—he uh, doesn't know exactly what the source of it is. Obama doesn't, according to Garrow, uh, but this thing within him to want to, uh, you know, continue politically and to get the accolade and the affirmation and the whatnot. Um, he makes it, Garrow, in his review, sound very, um, very, very intriguing. Right. And I gathered, Chimimanda uh, um, uh, 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 Adichie, I'm sorry, what's this woman's name? Chimimanda Adichie, right, yeah. Yeah, has written a long review, a very long review for the uh, New York Times book review uh, on, on the book. He says it's the longest review ever written uh, in the New York Times about a book. Uh, so I'm going to get that out and 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 read it. So w- let's order it and let's you know maybe not our next conversation, but the one after that gives a chance to get into okay. it. We don't have to do it all in one conversation. We can break it up because it's long. It's long. Yeah. Why would anybody want to be president? That's that. I that's a marvelous thing to want. Interesting. I guess I'll find out. So yeah, I'll I'll order it. Yeah. Okay. Well, good talking to you, John. I think we covered some territory. I think we did. I enjoyed this. So, yes, till next time. Till next time. Take care.